Good morning, beloved. All right. Well, there was a study a couple years ago in 2021, uh, largely performed in China, but this study was on the emotional gaze. The emotional gaze. Gaze is in how you see looking at something, but it's set out to understand the impact of the direction of our gaze and what that has on our experienced emotions as we encounter others. So when you see somebody and you gaze into their face and they gaze into your face, the emotions that are displayed, how does it affect the way that you either look or don't look at them? And because we tend to have this, this, this tendency to turn away from things that we don't want to see. And so what this study found is that happy and comfortable gazes tend to be face forward. That when you are happy or I am happy, when we're comfortable, we can look each other in the face and it's happy and comfortable. So we will do that. And yet when it's anger or fear or pain that's registering on your face, you or the other party tend to look away as quickly as possible. That we don't want to continue to gaze at something that causes pain. Um, I see this true all the time, that it's just harder to look at someone that's angry or upset. In my own life, like with my kids, when they're in trouble and they see the anger on daddy's face or I see the fear on their face, there's this, this discomfort there. And I don't know if your kids are like this, but for some very, very strange reason, as my kids are in trouble, they start smiling. I'm like, I can't stop, daddy. I'm sorry. And they're like, what is this madness that you're smiling when I know you're scared? Like, it's, it's just weird. But it's that discomfort of looking at someone in anger or fear. Or we all know this. You're watching TV. I know. It's a thing of the past, but you all remember, right? Sarah McLaughlin comes on. You hear that song? And you look away as fast as possible because you don't want to see those sad puppies because we don't like to look at pain. We have this tendency to look away from what is painful. But what if what we really need to do is look straight at it? Well, that's the tension today. Our tendency is to look away from pain, but what if what we really need to do is look straight at it? I can make us so uncomfortable, and maybe it should, but what if we really need to look at pain instead of looking away from it? And so if you will turn to Genesis chapter 50, the final chapter of the book of Genesis as we close out this summer series, Generations. And so as you turn there, uh, let me do a recap to bring you up to where we are in the story of Joseph. Um, Joseph's story is quite long in the book of Genesis. He gets a lot of real estate. Um, there's a beautiful reason for that, but remember, the reason is going to be tied to the reason for all of the scriptures, and that goes back to Genesis chapter 3, when man has rebelled against God, the fall has occurred, we have been alienated from life itself. God is holy. We have rebelled and defied this holy God. And so there's this separation. We're kicked out of Eden, away from the tree of life. And so God then comes in. Man knows his nakedness. Adam and Eve, they know their nakedness. And so they're hiding in shame. And God clothes them, this beautiful gospel picture. But he gives this promise as he's actually talking to the serpent and saying, here's your curse. You're going to crawl on your belly and eat dust all your days. But your offspring and the offspring of the woman will be at odds. And one day the offspring of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. You'll bruise his heel, but he'll crush your head. And so we're supposed to read the rest of scripture looking for that one. Who is the one who has been promised that's gonna come and turn this all around? Who's gonna be true, the true human? That we broke the image of God. We have marred that, made in his image. We have fallen short of the glory of God that we were created for to rule, to take dominion of this earth, to reign with God himself. What a privilege, what a status that we were given, but then we broke that. And God says, I won't leave you there. I'm gonna bring you back to myself. 
And so we're looking for the one, the Messiah, as he is called, the Christ, the anointed one, who would be the fulfillment of that promise. And so we're going through Genesis. We should be thinking every time we see a character, is this the one? Is this the one? And so we get to Joseph, and again, narrowing in, we're finding more and more about who is the one, or at least where to look for the one. But in Joseph's story, it starts off kind of cool. Joseph is this young boy who's the favorite of dad. He's got 11 brothers, and you know, not supposed to play favorites, but he gets this awesome jacket. All the other brothers are jealous. Joseph says, I've had these dreams, guys. One day you're going to bow down to me. And it makes him even more uncomfortable. So his brothers come up with this plot where they throw him in a pit, then they sell him to some people going to Egypt. Joseph has been betrayed, and it's this constant up and down, all this stuff. He rises up to prominence in Potiphar's house, this official of Egypt. Potiphar's wife accuses him of some awful things, and so he's now thrown into prison, and it's awful. We ended last week with the fact that Joseph in prison, remember he had dreams, he interprets the dreams of the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he says, baker, you're going to die. Cupbearer, you're going to be restored to your position with the king or with Pharaoh. Heck, well, that's awesome. And Joseph has to be thinking, the fulfillment of their dreams is taking place. Maybe the fulfillment of my dreams is going to take place. And we ended that chapter with the cupbearer leaving after Joseph said, when things go well for you, remember me. And the chapter closes saying, he forgot him. That Joseph, the first half of his story ends with him just being forgotten, left in prison in this dark depth. And so that's where we pick up today. And now if we jump through, we're going to fly through 10 chapters. So buckle up, um, listen to this. As I fly through this, I would greatly encourage you to go back and read through all of it. But as you transition from Joseph being forgotten in prison after he interpreted these dreams, chapter 41 brings about another dream. Actually, it's two dreams because the Pharaoh has dreams. Pharaoh has this dream. In one dream, there are these seven cows and they're like, whoa, those things are huge. They're enormous. And then there's other cows, these other seven cows, and they're like really, really gross. And the big cows eat the small cows. They're like, that's really weird cannibalism. I don't know about all that. Um, and then all of a sudden there are these seven sheaves, these types of agriculture, these plants that are growing up, and some of them are great and some of them are not great. And it's weird. And Pharaoh wakes up. He's deeply disturbed by these dreams. He calls his magicians and they're like, we have no clue. I don't know what that's all about. And so Pharaoh is in distress and he's like, Who's going to tell me the meaning of these disturbing dreams? The cupbearer, who was told not to forget Joseph, who interpreted his dream correctly, but forgot Joseph, now remembers Joseph. He says, there was a guy when I was in prison that could tell me a right interpretation of my dream. And it came about. So bring him in here. And so Joseph comes to Pharaoh. He interprets Pharaoh's dreams. And he says, here's the deal. Seven years of plenty. And then seven years of scarcity. There's going to be a famine. And so in these seven years of plenty, what we need to do is you need to appoint somebody who's going to orchestrate all this and amass a ton of grain to prepare and get us through the subsequent seven years when there's not going to be anything. And Pharaoh's like, that's really impressive. I like your plan. And I like the idea that we need somebody like that. And I like you. So why don't you do that? And so Joseph has this beautiful turnaround moment where he goes from in prison forgotten to he's remembered. Pharaoh says, hey, you're rising up. He actually becomes second to Pharaoh only. He's like, whatever this guy says, do it. And so Joseph goes about that. He's executing. He's rising to prominence and success. The interpretation comes true. There's seven years of plenty. They've amassed a ton of grain and food, all this stuff, ready to face the next seven years. The famine comes, and people all around are starving. 
There's a real famine throughout the land. And the brothers of Joseph, who think he is long gone, they are sent to Egypt because they hear that someone in Egypt has grain. And so Jacob, the father of these brothers, he sends them to Egypt, go get grain for us. Go buy some grain for us so that we don't starve to death. The brothers come and Joseph recognizes his brothers and decides to pretend he doesn't know who they are. And so as he knows, these are my brothers who are coming here begging me for grain, he doesn't give them his identity. He just says, you know, actually, you're spies, aren't you? You're spies. You've come here to spy out our land. You're working for some foreign power. Like, no, 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 no. And so he's like, well, here's the deal. If you're not spies, this is what's gonna happen. We're taking Simeon, one of you young ones, and I'm gonna keep him here locked up in prison. The rest of you go, and you can come back for more. But I'm keeping him prisoner to make sure that you're not spies. And so they keep this younger brother, and yet they're told, or Joseph is told, the youngest of the brothers is not actually here. Our father's getting old, and he deeply loves his youngest. We already lost another one of them. They don't realize this is him standing in front of them. And so the youngest brother, Benjamin, is still at home. And so he says, I'm keeping Simeon. If you don't bring Benjamin back with you next time, you get nothing. And so they leave. They've left. And now this is chapter 42. They have instructions to bring the youngest brother back if they want more. And it's a test. They put silver in there and they're wondering, Joseph is wondering, Simeon is in my control now. They have left a brother. Will they treat him as they treated me? That they were willing to just abandon and forget one brother. So this is a test that Joseph is putting on them. Also, their silver snuck into their backpacks. They get down the road and they open their sacks and their silver, the stuff we use to pay for this grain is with us. This isn't good. Oh no, there's no way we can go back now. So they get home and all this happens. Chapter 43, they're back with dad. Dad's like, what have you done? This is awful. They run out of food again. But they know if they're gonna go back to get more food, they have to bring Benjamin, the youngest. And so there's this tension as Jacob's like, you can't take him. We've already lost Simeon. You're going to take Jen? You're going to take Benjamin? Like, we have to. That's the only way this works. And so Judah, one of the brothers, steps up and he's like, here's the thing, Dad. This, this has to happen. I give you my word. I won't let anything bad happen to Benjamin. Like, I'll let him take my life before he'll take the life of Benjamin. But Benjamin has to come. So he makes this promise. They come back. And Joseph receives them. And this time, he not just gives them grain, but he's like, actually, you're gonna come eat with me in the palace. And so they have this meal and they've all gotta be wondering, like, what is this? Like, we got invited into a meal in the palace. And so there's this change that happens where at this meal, somehow, Joseph seats them according to their age. And like, we never told him our age. How does this guy know these things? And so they think he's some kind of diviner. He can, he can figure these things out magically. What kind of a guy is this? And so they're terrified. Benjamin is seated in a place of prominence and he actually gets way more food. He gets the best food. Like they're served McDonald's and he's served like a great steak. Like, what is this? What is happening here? The Benjamin, who we were terrified to bring, is being treated so favorably. Joseph still does not reveal who he is. Instead, he gives them another test. In chapter 44, he's tested them by putting his own personal cup in the pouch of Benjamin. And so they've got more food. They're starting to leave. And Joseph is like, all right, guys, go catch them. Go catch them. My cup is hidden in their pack. And so Egyptian officials run up. They catch them. Joseph's brothers are like, whoa, whoa, we've done nothing wrong. What, what do you want? Like, you stole from our master. No, we didn't. Absolutely not. 
in fact, if any of us stole, like, we'll be your slaves. Like, well, let's, let's do a search here. And they start to search everything, and they find Joseph's personal cup in the pack of Benjamin. And so all the brothers are like, oh, this is the worst possible thing. Dad was so scared to send Benjamin. Judah promised his life. And so Judah steps up and says, this can't happen. It will kill my dad. Take me instead. Take me in his place. And there's this beautiful proof of repentance. That Joseph is testing him and he sees that a real change has occurred. As Judah now is true to his promise that he will actually give his life for the life of his brother. Instead of treating him like Joseph, where they were willing to just walk away in selfishness, he's now willing to give himself. A clear change has occurred. And so they're back in the palace in front of Joseph. They're weeping. Judah has offered himself, and Joseph can't take it anymore. He breaks down and starts crying. The Egyptian officials all around could hear him like, what is going on? Joseph is upset. He reveals his identity to his brothers. Guys, it's me. The one you thought you lost, the one you thought you killed, you sold me. But here I am. According to God's will, here I am. It's me. You don't have to be afraid. He says, go get dad. Go back to Canaan, get dad, bring him here where it's safe. And so they leave. Chapter 46 sees all of Jacob's family come to Egypt. Joseph greets dad and gives this plan for like, hey, actually go ask Pharaoh if you can go to Goshen because the Egyptians don't like shepherds. Let's say we're all shepherds and then we can kind of have our own space. And so they do that. Chapter 47, the family meets Pharaoh. Joseph leads Egypt to great wealth as the famine continues, and he's basically like amassing land and wealth and all this stuff. So Egypt as a kingdom is rising in prominence and power under the successful leadership of Joseph. Now 48, Jacob knows he's getting close to death. He blesses the two sons of Joseph, and then... um, All the brothers come in as Jacob's about to die. In chapter 49, he blesses all of his sons. Um, And in that, you get more. Remember the context, what is the point of this? He narrows further as he says that someone of Judah will be kingly, which is like, wait, how how does this all work? Um, But this, we know Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And so you have all of these blessings coming in. Jacob finally dies, but he tells them that he wants to be buried in Canaan. And so take my body to Canaan. Chapter 50 picks up. Joseph and Egypt are mourning the loss of Jacob slash Israel as his name was changed. They take him and bury him in Canaan as requested. And now we pick up in chapter 50 after that wild story of Joseph coming to prominence, keeping his brothers in the dark, kind of toying with them to see like, have you guys actually changed? They have. And now come here, be safe with me. Dad dies And the brothers are terrified again because their thought is, what if Joseph is only being kind to us because of dad? Dad's the buffer here. What if Joseph wants vengeance and now dad's not here to stand in the gap? So what do we do? And so they come up with this idea. Look at Genesis chapter 50, starting in verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said to one another, If Joseph is holding a grudge against us, he will certainly repay us for all the suffering we caused him. So they sent this message to Joseph. Before he died, your father gave a command. Say this to Joseph. Please forgive your brother's transgression and their sin, the suffering they caused you. Therefore, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when their message came to him. His brothers also came to him, bowed down before him and said, we are your slaves. The fear sets in as he realizes he might still be mad about what we did to him. 
probably half of Joseph's life has been in captivity because of our decision, because of our betrayal, because we didn't like him, we left him, we sold him as a slave and pocketed the money. Because of our deception, because of our treachery, his life has been horrible and now he has risen to prominence. You guys remember that dream that we're gonna bow down before him and we thought, we'll, we'll teach him something. And here we are, bowing down to him, saying, we're your slaves, please. And they lie. Hey, Joseph, before dad died, he had this one thing. He was like, tell Joseph to forgive us, please. On behalf of dad, will you forgive us? And Joseph breaks down crying as well. Enough of the fear, enough of the deception, the fulfillment of the original dream as they literally bow down and say, we are your slaves, Joseph. This comes about. And now watch how Joseph responds. Verse 19. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. Therefore, don't be afraid. I will take care of you and your children. And he comforted them, he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph has all the power needed to at a single command have them executed, to exact vengeance on them, to bring about justice. And what does he do? First, let's not skip the fact that this was a process, that we're not to be naive. Joseph actually wanted to see, is there real change here? And so he tested them to see, was there real change? Was there genuine repentance in my brothers? But when he comes to this point, and at the moment where he could really do whatever he wanted to, and you've got to put yourself into his situation. Imagine the years of agony that you have been betrayed, you've been locked up, you've been a slave, all these awful things being forgotten. And he has his moment where he can make things right. And what does he say? Am I in the place of God? How hard is it for us to step there? It's easy for us to step into the place of God. Say, yes, I'll have my vengeance. I want justice. You're going to pay for what you did to me. And yet the call of the follower of Jesus is to say, no, no, no. I'll step out of the place of God and say, am I in the place of God? No. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. And so our call is to turn the other cheek, as Jesus said. Say, you want my cloak? We'll have my tunic as well. You want me to carry your stuff for one mile? I'll go too. It's to say, I am so free. I am so blessed by God that regardless of the oppression that you put on me, I can joyfully submit. I say, God's gonna make it right. I'm not in the place of God. This is reconciliation. There's genuine forgiveness. And this is what forgiveness is. Forgiveness means that someone who has been hurt says, I'll just take the pain on myself. The justice says, you should be hurt as much or more as I have been hurt. But forgiveness says, I'll just absorb that pain on myself and let you be free. And that is what the gospel is, right? The God says, justice must be met. There are consequences for your sin. But in grace, in mercy, in forgiveness, I'll take the pain on myself. And so Jesus dies taking our pain on himself, paying it in full. And so Joseph can live in that kind of freedom, responding to them kindly, assuring them being reconciled, brought back together 
with his family in this beautiful way. But what does he say? You planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. That you planned evil, but in this odd way, God actually planned it for good. That when the world schemes and tries to push forward the agenda of evil, God is so sovereign that he says, watch this, I'll redemptively use that even for good. And that is not to say that God is necessarily causing this evil, and yet he is ordaining it, that in his sovereignty, in his eternal decrees, he is orchestrating all things, that the fulfillment of Romans 8, 28 is true, that he's working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Or Ephesians 1, 11, that it's his counsel of his will that is bringing about all things, that God is sovereign and good over everything and bringing it to good. God sovereignly uses even evil for good. Do you know how beautifully true that is? Ultimately, unsurpassed in the gospel itself, the sending of Jesus, the Son of God, to be the God-man, to be the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15, that he is the seed who would crush the head of the serpent. He's the one we're looking for and what this story is pointing to. Peter understood that. That's why Peter preached at Pentecost. In Acts chapter two, Peter preaches at Pentecost and this is what he says. He says, Fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. God raised him up, ending the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. And it goes on, when they heard this, They were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized each of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. This is the gospel. There's a God who created everything good in the beginning. Remember the opening. God created everything good, and we have to start there. See, this is the character of God. He is good. He created all things good, and evil is just a perversion of what was created good. We rebelled against him. We have this fall. We're separated from God, and God says, I won't leave you there in your shame, hiding from me. I will come to you. I find you. He chases us, and he says, I'll make this right. So there's this promise of the one who's gonna bring us back together with God. It's Jesus, the one who's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. And so we come by grace through faith, just believing Jesus lived a sinless life, a life that we could not live because we are sinners. We're dead in our sin, and yet dead in our sin, rebelling the enemy of God. He loves us to death. He takes our sin on himself and is nailed to a cross, dying the death that you and I deserve. And he says, repent, and you turn from your sin. Confess you were a sinner. Turn away from that and turn to God. Put your trust in him, the one who died, but he also was raised to life so that we could live with him forevermore. That God wants us to go back to what it was in the beginning, to walk with him, to be with him, to be at peace, this shalom, to be flourishing with life everlasting, to be with God. He created us good. He brings us back saying, I'm renewing all things. This is the gospel. And yet, as Peter says, the most horrific thing to have ever happened on this planet 
the death of the only innocent human to have walked this planet, who is also God, Jesus, the creator of all things, was killed by his own creation. There is nothing more heinous than that. And Peter says, that was the plan all along. And the words of Joseph, what you intended for evil, God meant for good. This is the gospel, this is the good news. There's a God who is that sovereign that he uses even evil for good. What a reassurance to us. So when we're in those lows like Joseph, or we're in those highs, regardless of where we find ourselves, we love the fact that God loves us so much that we're called to love him in response. We're fine. And so we can say, who am I to be in the place of God? I'll seek reconciliation. I'll seek peace. I'll seek even your good at my expense. Because I can love you like that because the God of all loves me like that. What a gracious God. God sovereignly uses even evil for good. But we have a tendency to look away from what is painful, forgetting that often we should actually look straight at it. Imagine Joseph and all the ups and downs getting to the end of his story and only being able to just look away from all of the bad. Let me just distract myself by scrolling when anything hurts. Let me just run to this endeavor, this achievement that I'm after because I've got to get this position or I've got to hit this benchmark in this account or I've got to do this. I've got to find this relationship. We run after so many things thinking that's what's going to get me through. And I think that so often our pursuit of those things is because we just want to be distracted from the bad things. Whereas Joseph's story, the gospel itself tells us, stop, slow down, and actually look at the painful thing. And you may not understand it fully, but you can trust the promise of God by looking at the cross to know he uses even evil for good. But you have to slow down to do that. You have, to be do, you have to be willing to do the work of seeing it. In the words of the Apostle James in chapter one, he says this, consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. You know, and Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount makes us so uncomfortable when he says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And we can think that's like this, this moral imperative of like, I somehow have to measure up to God himself. But that idea of perfection actually means just, just stability, to be stable, to be set on this. As a father of Jesus, our hearts and minds are set on this, that he is our salvation, that he is our hope, he is our life. He is our perfection. He is our righteousness given to us at the cost of his own life. And that's how much he loves us. And so he is using all these painful things, these dark, horrible, painful things. He's using even those ultimately for our good. That it's creating for us this perfection, mature and complete, lacking nothing. I don't at all want to downplay your pain. Some of you are in pain that I have never even imagined. I know that. But I want you to hear from the word of God itself. He's actually active in that. 
He's using every bit of it. So much so that the Apostle James says, consider it joy. Consider it joy that God would use even evil for good. In your life, when things are hard, consider it joy when you face trials of various kinds, meaning all kinds. How in the world do you do that? It takes work. It takes consideration. Consider it joy means you have to do the work of considering. Um, Some translations say, count it all joy, using this financial term, accounting. You have to actually do the work of figuring out where things land. But we are so ingrained in a culture that says, just distract, just distract, move on, find something better. Good is ahead. How often do you hear that mantra? And in a sense, yes. But what if that is just a distraction from what you need to actually look at right now? And know that there's a God who's sovereign over every bit of pain and he's using it for your good and his glory. And so I wanna invite you to spend a few moments now to do the work of considering. May we have ears that actually hear and eyes that actually see, but it means slowing down and doing the real work of considering and seeing how this actually is joy. Do this work and keep the cross as your reference throughout it all. Even as we don't understand things, we can look back about 2,000 years and know for sure God uses even evil for good. We can trust in his promise and rest in that. But do the work of considering.